Come on in to Margaret McSweeney's Kitchen for Kitchen Chat, where every week you'll meet chefs, cookbook authors, foodies, gourmets, and just plain people who love to eat. And along with laughter, chat, recipes, and stories about food, you'll sometimes also hear words of inspiration, love, and hope. As Margaret always says, kitchen chat is food for the senses and food for the soul. So grab a cup of coffee, put your feet up on a comfy chair, and get ready to spend a little time with Margaret and her friends. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Kitchen Chat. This is Margaret McSweeney, your host, and I am so delighted that you're taking the time to drop by my kitchen today. For those new listeners, welcome and a little bit of background. Each week um, on Kitchen Chat, some wonderful cookbook authors, foodies, chefs, and people who just love food join me in my kitchen. And yes, I confess that I am the world's most horrible cook, yet I am so glad you're joining me on this culinary venture and learning all there is about the wonderful world of food. Well, today I am just so honored and delighted to introduce you to our first guest. Melissa Clark is a New York Times dining section columnist, and I'm sure many of you have read her, her wonderful columns about food. It's called A Good Appetite in the Dining Section. She also has written for Bon Appetit, Food and Wine, and Martha Stewart. Her work has appeared in Best Food Writing 2007, and she's a regular guest on NPR's national broadcast, The Takeaway. And also, she has written 32 cookbooks, I'm so impressed, including In the Kitchen with a Good Appetite, Braise with Chef Daniel, Balud, The Last Course with former Gramercy Tavern pastry chef Claudia Filming. Fleming, and even the Dean Family Cookbook with Paula Dean. I am just so honored to invite and welcome Melissa Clark on Kitchen Chat. Welcome, Melissa. So nice to be here. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you for, for taking the time today. And congratulations on your latest book, Cook This Now, 120 Easy and Delectable Dishes You Can't Wait to Make. I love this. <laughs> Thank you. And it has a great cover. And readers, um, I encourage you to visit her website, melissaclark.net, and get even more information. Um, I, I love the way you describe the food and, and share a bit of your life with us in terms of um, choosing and selecting the ingredients that go into each recipe. Um, could, could you talk a little bit about how this cookbook is is divided seasonally and and a bit of a highlight from each one well i decided to um to uh, organize a chap the uh, the cookbook into um monthly chapters mm-hmm. so there are 12 chapters each one corresponds to a month and um each, obviously, all the recipes are recipes that I made in that particular month. And what I thought was so helpful for people was to really be able to see what the perfect thing to cook right now would be. So, for example, you know, here we are in the middle of December and it's cold. And so we're all thinking, you know, hearty stews. And, you know, seasonal cooking isn't just about what vegetables are available, although that is a big part of it. It's also what we feel like eating. You know, we want to eat slowly braised meats in the winter or slowly braised soups, you know, slowly simmered soups, things that are very hearty and warming. And in the summer, we want to eat lighter. We just do, you know, the weather is warm. We want light things. Um, And then 
I always try to use vegetables that are in season and also things, you know, people also don't realize. And I certainly didn't until I started really thinking about what seasonal eating meant. Um, there are meats and there are fish that are also seasonal. Um, for example, salmon is in season in the summer. And when we get salmon the rest of the year, it's either been frozen if it's wild or it's been farmed. So the, the, there's some interesting things that I learned along the way that I share in the book. That is great. And one section I really devoured, pardon the pun, is your trip to the farmer's market there in Brooklyn's Grand Army Plaza during the middle of winter. Yes, that is, you know, a lot of farmer's markets all over the country are not even open in the middle of winter. And there's a good reason why. Winter is a terrible time to try to find (laughs) seasonal produce. You know, nothing is growing. But there are many reasons to go. And a lot of it is feeling connected to where my food comes from. I mean, there's something incredibly satisfying for me about going to the farmer's market when there's nothing new there. um, Because I get incredibly intimate with what is there. You know, in my um, chapter intro, I make, I uh, liken it to living in a big city in the summer. You know, in the summer, the farmer's market's just like, like basically like living in Manhattan. There's so many things there. You can't possibly get to know them all, just like you can't possibly get to know all your neighbors, you know. Um, You see, you know, the bounty is overwhelming. And in the winter, it's like moving to a small town. You you really get to know each and every inhabitant. I mean, I know rutabaga and turnips and potato, every potato variety in this very intimate way that I I really like. And I feel very grounded in the seasons as well when I go all year long. And, and, you know, I also go to my farmer's market, not just for produce, but I buy my milk there. I buy my grains at the farmer's market. Um, I buy my eggs and I buy my meat. So there's lots of reasons for me to keep going, even when it's freezing outside. <laughs> and you're bundled up and your toddler daughter is by your side. I just loved that precious description. And you're right. It is about connecting not only with neighbors, but with the food and, and the merchants and and what I've learned so much about, and I have lots of questions, too, because I had mentioned in the, in the um, kitchen chat intro, I am very much of a newbie in the kitchen and am beginning my culinary quest. But I love how you discuss all the different ingredients. For example, turnips. I had grown up in the South and mainly ate the turnip greens. But mm. I, yes, and I just read in your um, Good Appetite uh, dining section, you have this wonderful turnip recipe there and you talk about turnips throughout your new cookbook. Now, one thing I had never heard of, Melissa, and I'm curious about during the spring section of your cookbook, you talk about ramp. R-A-M-P. What exactly yes. is a ramp? Oh, so, oh, did you not have it in the South? You know, I'm never sure where ramps grow. They grow in different pockets. Um, okay. I guess mostly on the Eastern Seaboard, but I think they also, there are places they grow in the West as well. And ramps are like a wild leek or like um, almost like an overgrown bulbous scallion. And they are so sweet and so delicious. And we get those in the farmer's market every spring. And they are one of the first things we get in the spring. And they're so cleansing and green and fresh tasting. You know, when in the, as soon as the spring comes, the first thing you see pushing up in the snow that's edible, you yeah. see chives, one of the first things. Oh. And you see ramps. And it's the alliums, the onion family that really kicks us off. 
Oh, I never realized that. Yes, I loved growing up with Vidalia onions, the sweet onions. Mm, yeah, oh, those are wonderful. Yeah, so does ramp have kind of a similar t- uh, sweetness to it as a Vidalia? It's a little sharp. It's sharper than a Vidalia. Those are so sugary sweet. Yeah. Um, it's, it is like... Um, it's like a spring onion, you know, which is what some people call scallions, but they're actually quite, they're, they're different. They're just an immature onion. So it's an onion that is, has some green flavor to it. You know, it hasn't mellowed or ripened. It's become, it's still fresh and juicy, very juicy. Wow. Okay. And that is in your April section, I believe, in the spring mm-hmm. when you talk about ramp and provide these excellent um, recipes. And, and I really do like the way you've organized this into seasonal food. And for those going to the farmer's market and, and everything to know what to look for. And um, what has been, I mean, you have goodness, written 32 cookbooks. I am so impressed with some wonderful people. What has been your favorite ingredient? And oh, gosh. Been a common ingredient that you've kind of noticed that... I guess garlic. Uh, garlic. <laughs> it seems to come up in everything except dessert. <laughs> dessert. <laughs> but you uh, never know. I bet you could create a garlic dessert. <laughs> I probably could, but then I would think, well, why? <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's plenty fine for the beginning of the meal. Uh, great. Because it's interesting in looking at these wonderful chefs you've collaborated with. Each is so different. Um, mm-hmm, with, mm-hmm. with Jeff Daniel and, of course, Paula Dean and all of that, and, and, and with different um, areas of, of the country and cuisines. Yet, how interesting that, that there seems to be a bit of garlic sprinkled throughout. Mm, yeah, it is, I think it is a big unifier, <laughs> except, like I said, except dessert. That's great. And you are a busy mom as well mm-hmm. as, you know, a writer, an author. Um, what would be some recipes that are highlighted within your new cookbook? And it's called Cook This Now by Melissa Clark. And listeners, we will provide a link to her website and, and book. But for those busy moms who are listeners, um, where, which recipe has, have you found to be uh, really easy, quick, and great standbys for those very busy afternoons? Um, well, I mean, we love macaroni and cheese. You know, what kid doesn't love macaroni and cheese and what parent doesn't love macaroni and cheese? Um, I have a recipe in my book that I make with shredded carrots. And it's just so good because the carrots add a little bit of sweetness. And because they're shredded, they look like shreds of cheddar cheese. You don't really see them, but they add a great flavor. Um, My daughter loves it, so I know I'm getting, you know, good nutrition into her because she's eating the carrots. And I also do it with whole wheat macaroni, which, especially in a mac and cheese, you really can't taste the difference. And so you might as well. Might as well have that extra fiber and those extra nutrients. Um, So that is a really good one, you know, very kid-friendly, but also very healthful. Um, Dahlia loves, she loves bean soups. You know, I think a lot of kids like to eat soup. You know, yes, yes. Um, And I have a a recipe for white bean soup, which is so easy. The trick is to add a lot of olive oil. Um, That's why beans in Italian restaurants taste so good. (laughs) They just add a ton of good oil. That olive oil. That olive oil. So it's a white bean soup. It's sort of like a stew soup, somewhere in between the two, uh, with lots of olive oil and lots of garlic. And that one is delicious. And Dahlia loves that. Um, Coconut rice. Coconut rice is another great kid food. Um, And I make it with brown rice, but you could use white rice. Um, And it's basically, I simmer it in half coconut milk and half water. And it just adds a creamy richness. Um, 
And I served that one with a very adult uh, coconut chili short ribs, coconut chili braised beef short ribs, which are to die for. And they're a little bit spicy for Dahlia, um, but she'll eat them. I just wipe off some of the sauce and she'll eat the meat because it's very tender. You know, short ribs, when you braise them, are so tender. Um, in fact, she had short ribs for lunch today, not the oh. coconut chili ones, just simple braised short ribs that, that we did. Um, she likes meat. <laughs> she likes her mac and cheese, but she likes, you know, she likes meat, um, meatballs. Oh, meatballs. I've got a great recipe in the book for veal meatballs, mm. which you can also make with beef. And they're highly, you know, they're very highly spiced, not spicy spice, but they have cumin in them and mm. garlic. And they're just delicious. And Dahlia will, will eat very happily, make a meal of um, of meatballs. And, um, you know, she, uh, she likes, I think most kids, if they eat vegetables, they tend to eat things like broccoli and string beans. And she she'll eat that as well. Oh, that's great. And I loved the precious picture of her with the Malamar. <laughs> well, what she really loves is chocolate <laughs> and candy and cookies, right? So uh, that picture, you know, we took that picture when I think she was about two. It was the first Aww. time she ever got to eat a sweet that big. I mean, that thing was huge. It was as big as her head. And I, as her mother, was horrified watching her, but we needed it for the photo. And she was in heaven. So oh, she really was. So precious, just so precious. Now, who actually helped develop your palate and your love and passion for cooking? Oh, my parents. I get it all from my parents. You know, I think the most important thing you can do with kids is to eat with them. And my parents were great lovers of food. And even if it took me a long time to develop my taste for certain things, um, I did develop it, you know. And I, But I always had a love of eating. And um, that I got from my folks. Oh, that is great. And then what about your ability to cook? I am just so impressed. How did you learn to cook? I mean, because you really seem to do a very high-level skill of food preparation and cooking with cuisine. I um, learned the basics from my parents. You know, I cooked Mm -hmm. with them, with with my mother and my father. They both cooked different things, so I learned different skills from each. My dad was the baker, and my mom was more of the savory cook. So, um, so that was fun. And then I, I, you know, I really did a lot of cooking on my own. I'm very self-taught. I, I took a few courses here and there, and then I stodged in some restaurants. But mostly, I am, I am, you know, someone who learned at their parents' knees, and then I developed it myself. And then, what really pushed me over the, you know, from you know, good home cook to, um. Food, food writer quality was um, yeah. writing cookbooks with chefs because every chef that I wrote a cookbook with gave me a year-long tutorial in their kitchen and I learned wow. so much from them. You know, you, <sighs> you learn a lot when you spend a year cooking, uh, cooking in a professional kitchen next to a chef. So that was very, very instructive as well. Oh, that is just, that is great. And it gives me hope. I don't know if I'll be cooking next to a chef for a year in a tutorial capacity, but, you know, later in life, I, I am trying to really hone my skills as a home chef. And, oh, well, and there's just, no reason you can't just keep learning and keep learning. You know, one thing, though, that I did learn, the most important thing I think I learned from cooking with chefs was that if it tastes good, it is good. Okay. You know, there's no one way to do something. And if you're doing something and it's working, keep doing it. You know, you don't have to learn the right way to do it. If you've got a good way, that's just fine. That is just such wise 
wisdom and, and insight. If it tastes good, it's good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People doubt themselves and, right. and they doubt their skills. They yeah. think, oh, I should be doing it the right way. There's like a one kind of technique. And you know what? There's actually a million kinds of techniques that work. So stick with what you're good at, learn the new things, but don't feel intimidated or embarrassed about your lack of you know, proper technique, whatever that means, because it doesn't matter. In the uh, the end, what you care about is eating something delicious. Exactly. Oh, this is just such encouragement, Melissa. Thank you so very much. And I encourage listeners, please check out Melissa Clark's latest book, Cook This Now, 120 Easy and Delectable Dishes You Can't Wait to Make. And I will uh, definitely include a link on the kitchen kitchen chat website and meanwhile melissa do you enjoy eating out or do you mainly enjoy just cooking in i love both i love to eat out i love going to restaurants but um i'm really happy when i'm behind the stove wow that is great well thank you so much for taking the time from your very busy day today melissa to oh well thank you this is lovely to chat oh same here take care bye-bye I am so delighted to introduce everyone to my second guest for today's Kitchen Chat show, and that is Judy Rosenberg. Judy is the founder, the visionary, just the incredible person behind Rosie's Bakery, which is an icon in the Boston area. I'm sure many listeners out there um, have definitely stopped by her place to enjoy the the treats and sweets that that um she prepares anyway i I, she is just delightful judy rosenberg and she has a new book out called all butter cream filled sugar packed baking book with over 250 recipes so without further ado judy welcome to kitchen chat thank you so much i'm delighted to be here Oh, I'm just delighted for you to be on the show. I tell you, I could not put your cookbook down. I mean, it reads like a novel, which is so much fun. And what was just amazing, um, and I keep on wanting to call you Rosie, forgive me. Okay, (laughs) many people do. I, I have a quick question about Rosie. How did you come up with that name? Is there a Rosie? Well, there's a, my last name is Rosenberg, and my nickname when I was younger was Rosie. And we thought, you know, Rosie was cuter than Rosenberg's, which might have sounded like it was a deli. <laughs> so it just kind of conjured up, you know, images of a nice, warm-feeling Rosie's. It is. Everything's coming up, Rosie's. I love right. that. I love it. Oh, how fun. Well, good, because I, I was wondering, no, Rosie, who's Rosie? Well, Judy. <laughs> so, Judy, I was reading this book, like, up until midnight. I mean, it, I just could not put it down. And it, it starts off with, we lived in a huge apartment in the middle of Manhattan, and talking about, I remember Julie Andrews and Jean Stapleton coming over for auditions. Rob Reiner was at my third birthday party. And best of all, Marilyn Monroe lived in an apartment upstairs. It seemed ordinary to me. Those are the opening words of your book. (laughs) It was a pretty interesting childhood, to say the least. Wow. So real quickly before we dive into the culinary aspects, but what was it like having Marilyn Monroe as a neighbor? 
Well, it was incredibly exciting to me. And whenever I had a friend over, I would always have to bring them upstairs to her apartment to meet her. And she was the sweetest, quietest, shyest woman. And it was just very exciting to have her there. But lovely person. Lovely. Oh, isn't that nice. And do you ever remember... um, you know her cooking or anything? Did no, uh, no, no. I don't okay. know that. I don't know that she ever cooked. <laughs> but she always welcomed us into her home, which was really oh. interesting. She'd always invite us in, and she was very sweet. And she understood that for me, that was like such a moment of excitement. Oh, isn't that sweet? Wow. So, I mean, the ingredients of your life are are just fascinating. (laughs) Well, I have to say, I I do think growing up in New York City is is really a wonderful blessing because you just, it's a city like no other city. And uh, I may not have been running around in fields of grass, but I, you know, (laughs) nevertheless, I just, there was so much around me that I could take in. So it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Oh, yes. And then I love uh, some of the little um, culinary places you mentioned, and one of my favorite serendipities. Oh, my goodness. And they're frozen oh, hot chocolate. Frozen hot chocolate. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was oh. like the treat of all times. I always had to go there on my birthday and have the frozen hot chocolate. And it was so chocolatey and so delicious and so cold that again, <laughs> you'd have a headache afterwards because you couldn't stop eating. I love that. And Stephen Bruce, it, one of the founders of Serendipity, is just delightful and a past kitchen chat guest. And um, oh, that is one of my favorite places and in New York and very iconic like Rosie's Bakery in Boston has become. Mm-hmm. And congratulations, you know, on your success as an entrepreneur. I, I Thank that, you so much. It's fabulous. been 37 years now. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Pretty amazing, huh? <laughs> I love that. And and you have just collected some incredible recipes and I just can't wait to you know, to hear about all of these as we share with the listeners. But one thing that just really touched my heart, Judy, when I was reading this is um on page seven of the cookbook, when you say a final word, um, and by way of grant background, as many of my listeners know, I'm kind of on a culinary quest, and and I've never been a great cook, and definitely not a great baker, and and I'm the first to admit, and and forgive me, I, I buy those um, kind of pre-cut cookies, and I even burn yep, those, yep. those Nestle dollhouse. <laughs> but I love, love, love these incredible words that you share and 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 I think it gets to the heart of who you are and and the words that that you encourage readers with for the purpose of this group for the purpose of this book and you said my more immediate goal of this book is to demystify baking through common sense because I'm convinced that that is the key to successful and happy baking. In an odd way, I was lucky in my baking career, lacking formal training. I learned what I know through passion, instinct, and trial and error. And these still seem to be the best teachers anyone, novice or pro, can find. So my final advice is to trust my recipes, but trust yourself as well. After all, the worst that can happen is that you make a mistake and one of the joys of baking is that ma- the majority of our mistakes are edible. I love that. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's... you know, it, it's the truth. It's like, you know, I had no formal training, and I do think that people are very intimidated about baking. And, uh, you know, truthfully, 
you know, it takes any baker, even an experienced baker, it might take them a couple of times to get a recipe from a book perfect in their kitchen because their pans may be different, their oven may be different. So it's just a question of like not getting all crazy over outcome all the time and just knowing that, you know, you'll get it. You'll get yeah. it if you kind of make the adjustments to your own kitchen and you yeah. just go by your instincts. Um, I've learned so much from trial and error baking. There were so many times that I might have made a mistake, like leaving the eggs out of something. Uh-huh. And <laughs> by so doing, I learned what eggs do you know, to the batter. And then as I tested recipes repeatedly and repeatedly, and I said, it needs a little more sugar, it needs a little less this, a little more this, hmm. I was able to learn about the chemistry of baking. So anybody can do it. And it's really just about getting something to the point where it tastes the way you really want it to taste. Huh. So, now, you mentioned an interesting thing, and I am curious, what do eggs do to the baking? Well, this is a really interesting thing. Well, first of all, um, eggs give a kind of a cohesiveness uh, to the batter. But one time I made pumpkin bread and I literally left the eggs out. And although it was not the outcome that I would have had with the eggs, it was much crumblier. It was actually quite delicious, but it didn't have that same kind of cohesion that it would have had. So like eggs kind of bind things together so that the more eggs you have in something, the more it's going to be like that. And then the less eggs you have, the more crumbly it might be. But these are all things I never knew um, or, you know, like how adding sugar to a cookie makes it melt more when it bakes. Um, no, I wonder why dough. that is. It make, so adding sugar to a cookie makes it melt more? Yes. Yeah, so like because the sugar turns to a kind of a liquid when the cookie bakes, uh-huh. it will have a tendency to spread more. Whereas if you take the sugar out, it will puff up more and be more cakey. Interesting. Yeah. So I mean, but these are all things that as you as you bake, mm-hmm. you will learn, you know, you you will see how things impact things. And also it's like in my book, um, for example, I don't just say bake it for so many minutes. I say bake it, it, it until it looks a certain way, feels a certain way, approximately this many minutes because there is so much variation in people's ovens and people's yeah. pans that I think sometimes when people make things right out of a book and they do it for exactly that number of minutes, take it out of the oven and it isn't right, then they just right. get like, oh my God, I can't bake. You know, I'm a failure. <laughs> That's me. Yeah. And what? And you know what? I'm trying to understand what is like a cookie or, or whatever suppo- or cake supposed to look like or feel like to know it's done, and I keep on hearing about the toothpick test. I mean, what is there? You know, is there a, a foolproof way of knowing when something is really ready? Well, it really depends on the type of cake. If you're talking about a regular layer cake, mm-hmm. chances are, you know, when the toothpick is clean. However, you might bake it too long, and the toothpick would be perfectly clean. So right. you also have to kind of have a sense of like the sort of bounce that the center of the layer has to have or what it looks like. You know, you don't want it to rise up into a peak. These are just all things that as you bake more, you Mm -hmm. learn. Just the way if you were learning how to knit, as you knit more, you would become a better knitter. You know, as you bake more, you become a better baker. And uh, you, you kind of 
begin to see what the perfect layer looks like because maybe last time it wasn't perfect and it has it, you know, it's too rounded. So next time you're going to take it out a little sooner and then you're going to see it's good when the top sort of is like slightly puckered in texture. So these are all things you just kind of learn as you, as you bake. There are certain cakes where you want to have moist crumbs coming out, like a flourless mm-hmm. cake or a cheesecake. Um, so it, it's, it's very variable depending on the category of cake. Okay, now that's so helpful. And the other wonderful, helpful thing you include in the common sense baking section, what you need and, and, and t- in terms of what you need to stock your pantry with in yes. terms of the ingredients as well as the tools and, and the bakeware and what bakeware you use with which recipe and, and all of that. And you know what, that is so helpful because you know, for those of us who did not spend a lot of time, you know, baking in the kitchen with during childhood or even adulthood, it, it's just so helpful to have these directions. Well, it's also, I think it's really important if you are going to bake that you invest in some good quality bake pans mm-hmm. um, and some things to make your life easier because the cheap bake pans are definitely going to give you a different product. There are also little details, like for instance, if you have a baking pan that's a black baking pan versus a silver baking pan, you're going to want to reduce your heat by 25 degrees because the black pan conducts more heat than the silver pan. But, you know, the thicker the pan, the better, the sturdier, the more commercial pan, the pan, the better Mm -hmm. you're going to have, um, you know, your better outcome you're going to have with your baking. It just doesn't pay to scrimp when you're, you know, buying baking um, baking pans. It is an investment. And this is so interesting to know that the color of the pan can affect the outcome of the cake. Yes. Or if it, <laughs> even if it's, a, if it's Pyrex, you, would, you want to reduce your heat by 25 degrees. So, like, sometimes if people don't have that information, you know, they'll right. bake something at 350 in a glass dish and it'll get all dry and burned around the edges and they'll feel frustrated and they'll think that they're just not a good baker when, in fact, it's a technicality. Ah, this is so great. And the other thing I love, too, Judy, is um, within the cake section, for example, you talk about, you know, notes on procedures, and you explain how to separate an egg, how to divide a yolk in two when you need to have a recipe. I I, I just love it because, you know, a lot of times um, these recipes, you know, and a lot of cookbooks just say, okay, and and make sure you separate an egg. But not everyone knows how to (laughs) properly do that without all of the shells falling in. And then you've got to find that spoon or fork to kind (laughs) of dig it out. (laughs) Right. It's all very scary at first. (laughs) Yes. So thank you for including those wonderful tips. And then it's so cute because you just take it from step to step in terms of, okay, this is the the bakeware you need, and these are the procedures you need. And then on the way to the oven, <laughs> you have, you know, even in terms of, of what to to look for on that and, and how you even pour something into a mixing bowl. I did not realize that makes a difference. Well, you know, when I used cookbooks earlier on, um, I found things to be so confusing. First of all, things were not written out in steps a lot of the time, and they were in one paragraph, and you'd have to kind of keep looking back to see where things were. Things weren't explained fully. 
So I, my goal was to write a cookbook that really said like, okay, one, two, three, <laughs> four. And, you know, to be as explicit and as simple with as few words as possible to get the point across. And I have, to, you know, I think that people, I, I want this to be people's go-to book. It is a book that should not be intimidating. Um, yeah. You know, it's a fun book. It, it's all-encompassing in terms of all the different things that you can bake from it. And I want it to be like people's baking Bible. Oh, and chocolate smudged and, you know. (laughs) Yes, it'll be chocolate smudged for sure. And I love how you describe part of your life being it's been a chocolate covered life. Oh, (laughs) well, I mean, (laughs) so much of who I've become really Mm -hmm. has to do with my passion for eating. And um, I think if you have a real passion for eating and flavor and, and, the enjoyment of food, that that is really a large part of making things that really taste delicious. Yes, and and it was so interesting to read, too, about the types of chocolate that you recommend. Could you highlight a little bit about that? Well, you know, I'm not a fancy-schmancy girl. I mean... (laughs) I grew up on, you know, very, like, you know, chocolate that you buy at the supermarket. Mm-hmm. Am, I, am I allowed to mention brands? Oh, not? sure. That's yeah, fine. like, I mean, I'm I'm a baker's chocolate girl, okay? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I've always felt that the whole thing about fancy-schmancy chocolates, you know, I've baked with some fancy-schmancy chocolates, and I honestly don't think it's worth it. Or, you know, having huh. to buy, like, very expensive butters. I don't really understand that either. I think that, um, you know, all the things are there in your in your supermarket. And, you know, so many, and my desserts are not fancy smashing desserts anyway. And I believe that the key thing in any dessert is flavor. Yes. And things don't have to look perfect. You know, they can look right. down home and have some soul. And it's really, in the end, it's the flavor. It's that you, if you're making something with lemon, you want it to be more tart than you want it to be sweet. If you're making something with chocolate, you want it to be more chocolatey, you know, than something else. So I say, you know, go with the store-bought chocolates and you'll be just fine. <laughs> okay. And, and that's great. And that makes it easier with the shopping and, and having yeah. those ingredients on hand. And it's interesting, too, with butter. Do you use salted or unsalted, and what is the determining factor for that? Okay, I use unsalted, and I use it because once you use salted butter in a recipe, then you have to make an adjustment with the rest of the salt that's called for in the recipe. So I, you know, have always used sweet butter, and um, it's just a better control as far as then knowing how much salt you want to put into the recipe. So, you know, if somebody only has salt butter in their house on any given time and they want to bake, you know, they can certainly use it. I would just maybe, like, you know, cut the added salt in half okay. um, in so doing so that you don't okay. have something that comes out too salty. Right. And speaking of salt and chocolate, it was so interesting. A, a dear friend sent me these delicious little chocolates as a, a Christmas gift, and it has sea salt sprinkled on top of the chocolate. Are yes. you saying this is kind of a trend, a growing? You know what? This is a new thing now, and I actually think it's delicious. It's yeah. um, there, I, there's chocolate with bacon in it, chocolate with salt in it, chocolate with jalapeno peppers in it, and huh. I have to say, I have tasted quite a bit of it, and it is an absolutely delicious 
combination. I've even seen some recipes for brownies with um, sea salt on top. <laughs> that, yes, I mean, it's a great combo. I was so surprised. I'm like, huh, salted chocolate. Yeah, it's really <laughs> you know, an interesting and- concept. And at some point, I, I definitely plan to, uh, you know, do some stuff with that because there are, you know, I've always loved, like, for example, there are some recipes in the book that combine chocolate with sour cherries. And huh. it's that kind of tart mm-hmm. and then sweet. And it's a wonderful, wonderful combination. So it's really kind of that same kind of idea. Um, and it's just a wonderful contrast, you know, like sweet and tart. Yes, yes. And it was a lovely little presentation, like little sprinkles of salt. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> Salt on delicious. top of, of the chocolate. Now, speaking of chocolate, too. The Boston cream that that just jumped out at me. Your recipe Boston for, cream pie cake. Yes, yeah. and I have first of all just like a general question: what what is this Boston cream? When did the concept of Boston cream pies come up? I'm just so curious about the history behind that. Well, it's been around for a really really long time, and actually, the true Boston cream pie is made in a pie tin. And it's mm-hmm. a layer of yellow cake with custard on top of it, very gelatinous custard. Um, huh. It kind of holds its own shape. And then on top of that, a chocolate glaze. So what I did was I just took a cake, a yellow, a golden butter cake, and mm-hmm. I layered it with custard and then did fudge on the outside. And that's my version of the uh, Boston cream pie. Oh, that does sound so yummy. Now, what are some of the highlights for you of recipes in, in this book, which has 250 recipes? And, and I have to add on the side to listeners that Judy Rosenberg, who is the author of All Butter Cream Filled Sugar Packed Baking Book and the owner of Rosie's Bakery there in Boston, uh, several locations, you are also an IACP Julia Child Cookbook Award-winning baker, mm-hmm. and and that's huge. And here you did not have the formal training and everything, and you have won such distinguished awards. Well, you know, I really, I really, I owe it all to my parents because my my parents shopped. My mother was not domestic; she was a businesswoman, but she shopped mm-hmm. at New York's best bakeries, ah. and she really taught me what flavors should like what baked goods should taste like, you know, mm-hmm. at, at the highest quality. And I think that when I tested my recipes and when I started my business, I just kept baking a recipe until it tasted the way I thought the prototype of that thing should taste. So it was really uh-huh. all about taste buds, yeah. not really about the, the skill of having learned how to bake. Do you know what okay. I mean? Yes, and that gives us such, or me personally, such hope and encouragement in terms of, you know what, you can do this, even without the formal training and all of that. And and, and these recipes are just phenomenal. What are some of the, the standout favorites for you? Well, I can years? tell you a couple, like the, the double whammies is ah. um, America's two favorite things. It's a layer of brownie and a layer of chocolate chip cookie all in one bar. Mm-hmm. Very easy to make, um, absolutely delicious, kind of, you know, like fudgy and delicious, but with two distinct layers. Those are delicious. Something a little, one of my more complicated recipes, although it's not really that complicated, but it's uh, <laughs> caramel apple casserole, which is wonderful for the holidays. It's mm. apples and, and, and crust that are layered in four layers with um, 
a sugar butter caramel sauce that's poured on the apple so that while it bakes in a casserole dish in the oven, the whole thing kind of caramelizes and you eat it with vanilla ice cream in it. It really is to die for. I mean, there are all kinds of cookie recipes that are delicious. My chocolate chip cookie recipe. There's a lot of chocolate chip cookie recipes in here. Oh, and I have to add this on a side note, Judy. Speaking of your chocolate chip cookies, um, it is so great. And I encourage those listeners with friends, family in Boston, um, to to visit well, Rosie's in person, but also her website, rosiesbakery.com, because what is so much fun is you can actually send your loved one, friend, something uh, like a, via text. So, for example, Judy, today, this That's morning... That's text a treat. <laughs> text a treat, yeah. So, today, my, my dear daughter, my oldest daughter, is in finals at, at a college in Boston, so I sent a text to her today for a treat. For, Isn't that um, a these, great concept? Yes, yes, with chocolate chip cookies. So it is so fabulous. So here, you know, she's in Boston, and, and I just wanted to give her a little hug from home, and I sent the text to treat, so she'll be able to pick up some chocolate chip cookies from Rosie's Bakery during this uh, the time of finals to give her Oh, well, that's food. so wonderful. <laughs> So, and now you can do that right from the website. Yes, and it's so easy too. It it just really is easy. You just kind of click on everything, and um, so thank you for having that. I mean, it just makes it it, it easy to to um, share some some hugs from home. Well, after <laughs> all, texting is the thing of the day, right? It sure <laughs> is. It sure is. I just just had to share that on the side with uh, you mentioning your chocolate chip cookies. So. <laughs> But in and then there are the Soho Globs, which is a fudgy chocolate cookie chopped, uh, yeah. chocked full of walnuts, pecans, and chocolate chips. That's fantastic. There are some wonderful fruit pies in here. There's my matzah crunch for the Jewish holidays in uh, around Passover. Uh, yes. Donut holes. Oh, so easy to make and so delicious. Oh, that sounds great. And I'm getting so hungry talking about all this. Now, what was your inspiration for the Soho Glob? Is that what it's called? Again? Well, I was in New York. Um, I think after I had moved away from New York, I came back to New York. And, of course, Soho was the place to go. And there was a place right. called the Soho Charcuterie. Hmm. And I went in there, and they had these big, clunky cookies that were just divine. And I huh. thought to myself, oh, my God, I have got to have something like that in my store. So I bought the, I think they were in the Soho charcuterie cookbook and I kind of worked them to the way I wanted them to be in my store. And they are just unbelievably delicious. They're kind of like, you know, if somebody said to me last night, they're like, if a brownie and a cookie had babies. They're like literally the, the cookie counterpart of a brownie, you know. Oh, I love that. Now, another interesting thing I've never heard of, um, what is a Mandelbrot? A Mandelbrot. Okay, a Mandelbrot, Mandelbrot is Mandelbrot. really, it's, it's a Jewish word for um, a biscotti. It's almost like a biscotti. Like ah. um, and it's a very integral part of the Jewish uh, heritage, baking heritage. Um, wow. It's a little richer than a biscotti because it's mm-hmm. made with butter most, uh, most often, and you can put all different kinds of things into it, chocolate chips mm-hmm. or whatever. And uh, it's a wonderful little cookie 
to have because it's not as rich as, oh. for example, the Rosie's thumbprint cookies, the raspberry thumbprint cookies, which are melt in your mouth, <laughs> shortbread cookies, you know, butter, oh. flour, sugar, yes. period. Oh, yum. <laughs> Unbelievable melting your mouth, just like huh. everybody's grandma used to make. I mean, I oh. think most of the recipes in this book are very nostalgic recipes. Um, yeah. They're all things that kind of call forth memories of our childhood, our grandmothers, um, things that are part of the American heritage. And um, they're not intimidating, you know. Right. And chocolate is definitely part of the American heritage. And and I love where you talk about pecans because, you know, definitely in the South where I grew up, um, we just, loved pecans and, and pecan pies at family um, gatherings and everything. So oh, it's such a beautiful nut. I mean, it's a <laughs> it great is. nut. Great yes. nut. Yes. Yes. So I'm um, so thrilled you paid homage to that, too. <laughs> and, you know, the fact that, you know, the fact that it's the Rosie's Bakery, all butter, cream-filled, sugar-packed, you know, I'm in, you know, I believe that when you eat dessert, it should be the real thing. I'm certainly not advocating that people, you know, have just nothing but fat in their diet because I think right. you basically eat a healthy diet and exercise and all that stuff. But I really do believe that like there has to be that occasional decadent indulgence because it, the joy you get from that is just sort of part of my holistic view. It's the yin and yang of life and the fact that like you have to have those little indulgences to kind of keep yeah. you happy as a person yeah. in general, at least for me, being that I love food as much as I do. Right, and you're right. It's all about balance and really just embracing the joy of life. And chocolate does bring great joy. <laughs> chocolate, butter, all those things. You yeah, know, as my mother combined. My mother, in the old days, before really people thought about fat and cholesterol, I had a great grandmother who lived to be 98, and my mother said oh. she had bread with her butter. Oh, how cute! You know, she just, bread with just her ate butter. so much butter. Ate bread with her butter. So, um, oh, you know. Butter. I can get into that. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Oh, well, Judy, this has just been so delightful hearing about your recipes from the all-butter cream-filled sugar-packed baking book, which is available now. And I will um, make sure I provide a link on Kitchen Chat listeners so you can connect with that as well as a link to rosiesbakery.com and you can have a look on on all the different um, menus she has available her blog uh, the store recipes all of these wonderful wonderful things are, are featured on on her website as well and I'm just so appreciative of of your bringing a little sweetness into the kitchen today here on Kitchen Chat. Well, I'm honored to have been on your show, and I thank you so much. It was absolutely lovely chatting with you. Oh, thank you so much. And listeners, I will leave the link. And meanwhile, as you gather together in your own kitchens with family and friends, remember to savor the day. Thank you for joining us today. If you're interested in Margaret's books, A Mother's Heart Knows, Pearl Girls Encountering Grit, Experiencing Grace, and Go Back and Be Happy, please just click on the covers on the webtalkradio.net page in front of you. 
Margaret would love to connect with you and hear from you. So join her on Twitter, Facebook, her blog, or click on this website to leave a note and share a recipe. Thank you again, and we'll see you here again for a new show next week.